verse 1 says, Therefore you have no excuse. Every one of you that passes judgment on those dirty, rotten scoundrels in chapter 1, every one of you that thinks you're better than they are, every one of you churchy people, every one of you religious people, every one of you high ethical standard type of people, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. This is an amazing example of turning the tables. We read Romans 1 thinking that Paul is talking about other people. I mean, it, it leads you to believe that way. If you read Romans 1, these verses 18 through 32, Paul talks in third person. You remember old English class? First person is talking about me, and second person is you, and third person is them. They. Listen to me summarize these verses again with that type of emphasis. Verse 18 talks about the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Verse 20, they are without excuse. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 27, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Verse 32, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. You read all that and you think, Paul's talking about someone else. He's talking about them. He's not talking about me. But the problem is, them and me and you are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. You might protest, hey, I'm not guilty of all that stuff in Romans 1. Well, maybe not all of it. But you're guilty of some of it. You're guilty of some of it. And there's something worse than being guilty of the stuff in Romans 1. What's worse than being guilty of the stuff in Romans 1 is this. Being guilty of it and then judging other people for doing the same thing you do. We call that hypocrisy. And that's what Paul calls us out on in verse 1 of chapter 2. When you do that, Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you have no excuse. No excuse. We just read that in chapter 1, verse 20. God's eternal power and divine nature 
have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. They have no excuse. Those rotten, dirty, nasty sinners have no excuse for rejecting God. And now Paul turns the tables and he says, neither do you. You have no excuse for thinking that you're better than they are. In chapter 2, verse 1, we find out something. We find out that we're all under God's judgment. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul goes on. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You know, here's the deal. If you condemn other people for being bad, you're condemning yourself. Every time I point a finger at you, i got three more pointed right back at me. Mom, ever tell you that? It's true. And so we've got two options. If we don't want to be guilty of hypocrisy, we've got two options. Option number one, well, we never uphold or we never proclaim God's righteous standards. And that's what most people in our society have chosen to do these days. They say, oh, nothing is wrong. Morality is relative. It's only wrong if it feels wrong to you. What's wrong for me might not be wrong for you. What's right for me might not be right for you. I mean, who's to say what's right and wrong? Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Don't be a hater. The problem with that line of thinking is that it denies reality. Who's to say? God is to say. God is to say. Who's to judge? God is the judge. It always cracks me up when someone does something wrong and then they get defensive because they get called out on it. And they say, don't judge me. God is my judge. Really? You're calling on God to judge you when you know you did something wrong? Is that really the smartest thing in the world to do? Who sets the standards? Society says. God does. These are not difficult questions to answer. God sets the standards. God has absolutes. God is absolute. Who's to say what's right and wrong? God does. God says if something is wrong, it's wrong. If God declares something to be wrong, it is wrong. If it violates God's decree, it is wrong. It's wrong if it does not represent God's nature, God's values. And so we can't, with any sense of uh, being honest to ourselves, adopt this idea that oh, we just sort of give up on morality and say nothing's right and nothing's wrong, like most of our society does. It only leaves us with one other option. As Christians, as a church, as people who say they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's our only other option. We proclaim God's righteous standards, and at the same time, we acknowledge that apart from Christ, we fall horribly short. That we are in the same boat as everyone else who violates God's standards. And so the, the good news is that there's only one way for us to get out of this predicament, and it's if God helps us, and God has decided to help us. Look at verse 4. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. It says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? 
not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God is kind to you. God is good to you. Listen, if you've sinned, if you're living a life that's not pleasing to God right now, God does not easily write you off. God does not quickly give up on you. Have you ever had someone in your life who truly loved you, who never gave up on you? I'm not saying that they gave you everything that you asked for so that you could uh, indulge your own self-destructive ideas and tendencies. I'm not saying that they were enabling you, but I'm saying they never gave up. I'm saying they kept on praying for you. I'm saying they kept on loving you. I'm saying that they were there for you even after you made bad decision after bad decision. You knew in the depths of your heart there's someone who loves me. There's someone I can talk to. For a lot of us, it's mama. Mama always loved me. For a lot of us, it might be a friend. It might be dad. Listen, God is that way. God is that way. God never grows tired of you. God does not give up on you. He never will. God is constantly drawing you to himself. He's yearning for you. He's waiting on you. Every day of your life, it's as if God invites you to sit down with him. And he says, let's talk. You and me. I want to get to know you. I want you to get to know me. God does not give up on you. Let's look more closely at these words, these powerful words in verse 4 that describe God's actions toward us. First word is kindness. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness? What does that mean? God is kind. It means that his actions toward you are benevolent. It means that he's not out to get you. He's out to bless you. Secondly, it says that God is tolerant. <coughs> Excuse me. What's it mean to be tolerant? Well, in our society, tolerance means you just sort of look the other way. That's not exactly the tolerance of God. The tolerance of God means that even though you have earned a guilty verdict because of your sinfulness, God has delayed his judgment of you. That's what tolerance is. God has temporarily suspended the punishment that sinners deserve. We've earned a death sentence, but God gives us a suspended sentence. Why? Because of the third word. Because of his patience in verse 4. His kindness, his tolerance, his patience. Why does God temporarily suspend the death sentence that we deserve? Because he's patient toward us. He's giving us time to repent. He's giving us time to repent. And if we will repent of our unbelief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that suspended sentence that hangs over you, that's 
that sentence of death and judgment and eternity and hell that hangs over you, God will wipe it out. And he will declare you to be innocent of all of your crimes against him. Forever not guilty. He's patient. He's waiting for you to turn away from your sinfulness, turn away from your unbelief, and to embrace Jesus Christ. So think about this, these three words. God's kindness, that means his benevolence, his goodness toward you, his suspension of your death sentence, and his giving you time. What does it say in verse 4? It leads you to repentance. And Paul's question is, do you think lightly of this? Is this just something you brush off as if it's no big deal? God loves you, and you dare to hold that in contempt? Verse 5, Paul continues. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. For yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. I mean, if we commit, excuse me, if we judge other people for committing the same sins that we commit, and then on top of that, we don't repent from that and embrace Christ, we're not going to escape God's wrath. Instead, we're storing up his wrath. It's like we're making an investment. In our own judgment. Some of you have some pretty good 401ks. Some of us, if we're not careful, we might rack up quite a hefty account full of wrath that will be revealed to us someday. You see, even though God is kind and He's tolerant and patient, a stubborn, heart, a stubborn heart that resists him makes that heart grow harder. And when a heart grows hard, when a spiritual heart grows hard, it becomes less responsive toward God's calling. And the irony of all of this is that God is giving us time to repent. And how do we use that time? Not to repent. We use that time to store up more judgment for ourselves. A complete reversal of the time that God gives us. That time is what we call our life. But God gives us that time. And hopefully someday we will repent. Maybe that will be today. Because there's coming a day when your time will be up. It will be over. There's coming a day with all finality when God's judgment will be revealed. And this was prophesied in Psalm 110 a psalm written by King David a thousand years before Christ. And what King David wrote, well, a lot of us know the first verse of the psalm because Jesus quoted it as a prediction of, of himself. I'll read you that first verse. Listen. King David wrote, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Let me rephrase this the way we can understand it so it's interpreted for us. The Lord, God the Father, King David said, said to my Lord, 
Jesus Christ, God the Son, God the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is what is happening right now with the temporary delay of God's final judgment against sin. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God right now, ruling over this world as people use that time either to repent from their sin and embrace Christ or to store up judgment, store up God's wrath for themselves. And when the day finally arrives, when God's judgment is due, He will not judge us according to whether we say we were a Christian. He will judge us according to our actions. Look at verse 6. Speaking of God, Paul says, who will render to each person according to his deeds. This is a powerful verse. There are three principles in this verse. Number one, you have the certainty of God's judgment, who will render. That's the certainty of God's judgment. Number two, there's the universality of God's judgment, who will render to each person individually. That's you, that's me. Number three is the criterion for God's judgment, according to their deeds. Again, it doesn't matter what you say. Because your actions will determine whether you follow Christ. If you owned a tree and someone were to come along and wonder what kind of tree it is, you know the easiest way to tell what kind of tree a tree is is to look at its fruit. On the day of judgment, the fruit of your faith or the fruit of your unbelief will be revealed. And every person will end up receiving one of two possible outcomes. Those are found in verses 7 and 8. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, they will receive eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, they will receive wrath and indignation. Your eternal fate will be one of those two options, eternal life or wrath and indignation. If you're truly a follower of Christ, and you have in your heart a steadfast commitment to doing good, you will receive eternal life, but not the second group. The second group, their lives are controlled by selfish ambition. And they not only receive God's wrath, but also His indignation. What's the difference between God's wrath and His indignation? Well, the word that's translated wrath, it means a deeply rooted, consistent opposition to sin. It is God's eternal opposition to sin. It is the wrath of God that Paul had been talking about in Romans 1 that is at work in people's lives in order to bring them to repentance. 
It's that idea that we're corralled up, we're holed up in our sin, and there's no escape, and I feel like my life is killing me. I feel like there's something that should be better than what I'm living right now. And we eventually come to the point where we fall on our knees before Christ and we follow Him. The wrath of God is at work, corralling people up in their sin. But on that day, there's also revealed to us His indignation. The word indignation usually means a sudden outburst of anger. So on the day of judgment, people who have no fruit of being a believer will receive what they have finally earned. A fury of divine retribution. And people will say, well, how can a loving God send someone to hell? Listen, if you don't understand that this loving God has spent your entire life drawing you to himself, and if you consistently say to this loving God who wants nothing but your best, you say to him, get away from me. I don't want to be a part of you. I don't want Jesus to be a part of my life. I don't want to follow Jesus. Eventually, God will give you what you desire. But he's patient towards you. Because until you repent, you're acting like a fool. You're heading straight toward his judgment. And that's the last thing he wants. He's giving you time now. Verse 9 says, There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. What's that mean? When, when, people, when God's judgment is revealed, people will experience tribulation and distress. These words, one, one interpreter said it this way, there will be crushing distress and anguish. Another one translated this way, there will be a grinding misery. Who is it that receives this punishment? Every soul of man who does evil. The word does evil means they are committed to doing evil. They are committed to not following Christ. They are committed to being selfishly ambitious. They are committed to being stuck in their sin. And they have no desire to repent. For that soul of man, there will be tribulation. There will be distress. For the one who persists in doing evil. And that judgment will come regardless of who you are. It says in this verse, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Why, why the Jew first? Why does it say that? Well, you remember what Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Why to the Jew first? Because God chose Jews to be His people. He revealed Himself to them. He gave them His law. The Savior of the world came through them. And so they have priority, the priority of the blessing of salvation. They also have priority in judgment. Because God did reveal himself to them. But for people whose faith in Christ inspires them to do good, whether they are Jew or Gentile, their judgment will have radically different results. Whether they're Jew, whether they're Greek, it makes no difference. Verse 10, 
It says, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God will give glory to you if you follow Christ and have the fruit of doing so. That's an incredible thought, that God will give glory to you. We're, we're supposed to give glory to God. But on that great day, when we see the Lord face to face, when His judgment is passed out, those of us who seek to honor God, who seek to live good lives because of our true and real faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, I'm going to glory you. I'm going to glorify you. God's going to give us a glorified body. God's going to lift us up to a position we don't deserve. God says that I will honor you. Listen to Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. That's crazy. I don't deserve to sit on Jesus' throne. But Jesus says, If you overcome, I'm going to give you the privilege of sitting on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That is an incredible privilege that God would glorify us, that God would honor us, that God would give us his peace, his shalom, the eternal peace of God which passes all understanding. And we only understand a little bit of it here on this earth. I mean, if you know Christ, and I mean you really know Christ, there is a peace in your heart, isn't there? It's undeniable. And when you lose someone and you go to that funeral and you know that person knew the Lord and you know the Lord, there's a peace that lost people don't have. Listen, I'm here to tell you that peace that you have right now, it's a fraction of what God has in store for you. It's going to be so much more. So much more. God will glorify you on the day of judgment. God will honor you on the day of judgment. God will, will give you his peace in an eternal way on the day of judgment. You can receive God's glory and his honor and his peace only if you'll turn away from your unbelief and embrace Christ. Have faith in him. And it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter what your skin color is. It doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your religious background is or your secular background is. It doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter who your mama and daddy were. It doesn't matter that at all. You might have been born in America. You might have been born in Mexico. You might have been born in Russia. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It, none of that matters. You might have had the privilege of being born a Jew. Or you might have had the not-so-great privilege of being born a Gentile like me. It doesn't matter. We all can have the promises of God. Verse 11 says, For there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God. It doesn't matter what your title is, what your job is. It doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank, how little you have in the bank. There's no partiality with God. God is loving. He's kind. He's benevolent towards you. And he says, won't you come to me today? 
Won't you come to me? I love you. All you got to do is say yes.